There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ruler is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Ruler interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at ruler.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Ruler, and this is Ruler Conversations. I'm joined today by James Start, Ruler's roving photographer based in Paris. How is Paris, James, and how are you? Paris is enjoying an Indian summer it has never, ever enjoyed before. It's a little uh, unsettling in some ways to be almost in the middle of October and still be having summer temperatures. But boy, it sure is. There's some very nice days here. I went out for a long ride in the valley uh, this weekend and things I just don't usually get to do at this time of year. So we're going to talk today about three things, two of which are the European season's closing weekend. We just had the final monument of the season, Il Lombardia, and also Paris Tour. And we'll also talk briefly about the situation with the Jumbo-Visma-Sudal merger that turned out not to be a merger, and what it's meant for the transfer market and stability of the sport. But first things first, have you bought your tickets for Rouleau Live yet? Rouleau Live is the world's best bike show, takes place Thursday, November the 2nd to Saturday, November the 4th, at the Truman Brewery in Shoreditch, London. James, why should our listeners be logging on to Rouleau.cc and buying tickets? Because if you like cycling, this is a great great time. Roman Bardet told me, so this is like the greatest cycling festival that exists. He's come to it before and he just loved it. And uh, you and I both discovered it for the first time last year as we were new to Uller and just couldn't get over how much fun it was, you know? I mean, we were there to work, but it wasn't really work for us because it was a lot of fun. So I, I'm really looking forward to going back, um, seeing people. It's going to be fun. There's going to be some new exhibits, some new stuff. We've got a lot of great people coming up on the stages. It's a great time if you love bicycle racing. We've got almost too many headliners to, to list, but I'm going to anyway. So we've got all three women's Paris-Roubaix winners, uh, Lizzie Dignan, Elisa Longo-Borghini and Alison Jackson, all appearing at the show. Geraint Thomas will be there. Annemiek van Vleuten, who has recently retired, uh, probably the, the greatest cyclist on the female side of the sport in the last five, ten years. Matej Mohoric, the newly crowned world gravel champion, will be there. Pauline Ferrand-Prévost, it'd be easier to list what world championships she hasn't won in the course of her career. We've got for the uh, retro fans, Vincenzo Nibali and Paolo Bettini. Remember them, James? And Fred Wright. I've also got the latest bike tech from some of the biggest brands. And we've got not just one, but two stages with talks, interviews, panels and masterclasses. 
Uh, you can get backstage access with VIP tickets. Um, there's a bar area, of course, where you might find me and James crying in the corner and many, many familiar faces among attendees. The aim of the show really is for it to be an, an IRL version of the magazine. And James, what are your best memories of last year's show? Just A, the presentation of all the different stands. It's just like you just walk around there with your eyes open and, and look at all this wonderful stuff, you know, I mean, bikes and equipment that we just love. I was on stage with Johan Muzio, the king of classics of his time, and we had a really good chat. That was that was fun. There were so many good talks. I did some portraits uh, that I really remember very well with, say, uh, Tom Pidcock that I really loved and Tom Boonin, and they gave me a chance to connect with them uh, from a photographer's point of view. Just so many layers and so many different things to discover and participate in it at Ruler Live. It's just fun. We've got all those headliners and the, maybe the biggest bonus of all, you get to hang out with us, the Ruler staff. And I'm going to be doing some uh, some gallery talks and talking about cycling photography. There's a, a lot of different things out there to discover. Yeah. So Ruler Live is the world's best bike show. Go to ruler.cc and click on the Ruler Live button at the top of the page. It's £25 for a day ticket. Get a 10% discount if you're a member of the Ruler Society. And a season pass for all three days is £60, so that's £20 a day. They're selling fast. Get them while you can. Also, James, we'll get to the racing in a minute. While I'm pushing Ruler products, our latest magazine, the Travel Edition, is available now. Go to ruler.cc slash subscribe and enter the code PODCAST15 to get a 15% discount on our regular price. It is a thing of beauty packed with excellent features. So, James... There is still a little bit of racing to come. We've got the Veneto offence in Italy, the Japan Cup, Tour of Guanxi, Tour of Chongming Island. But really, it's it's that time of year, isn't it, James? The season is more or less over. Yeah, the you know the traditional closing of the curtain is these final classics, Perry Tour and the uh, Tour of Lombardy. And it used to be they would be one weekend after the other. Now they're on the same weekend. But as a result, we had the sort of final fling this past weekend with both of them happening. They're very different races, but they bring, you know, a lot of great riders together. And and now it's over. In Lombardia, the final monument of the season was won by Tadej Pogacar in a pretty much trademark textbook solo break. And Paris Tour. Now, this was won by Riley Sheehan, a stagiaire with Israel Premier Tech, which, you know, that's a hell of a result for, for him and the team. Let's talk about... Il Lombardia first, James. Uh, how how was it for you? How did you enjoy the race itself? Well, it's you know it's such a gorgeous race. You know they call it the race of the falling leaves, right? And it's where you get some really great autumn colors traditionally. And we had colors because it was you know the weather was fine. I've had some very ill-fated Lombardias. Um, it brought an end to my camping career. I remember because when I was just starting out, I would be camping to save expenses. And the first two Lombardias I did. Well, I camped in the rain, and by the end of my second one, that was the end of my uh, uh, camping experience. But, you know, it's a, it's a hard race. In many ways, it's a race of attrition because you got at the end of the season, there's a sense of fatigue, but everybody's strong. And it's just, you know, you go, they're going so hard, so much harder than, say, at Milan San Remo. And it's just a real sense of attrition. And to see what happened with, uh, with Pogachar was, you know, it's just, again, a reminder of what a stunning athlete he is. I mean... Roglic said, I could be happy to get third place. That's all I was good for. He, you know, he was just too strong. And Roglic had just won one of the, the, the big warm-up races two, three days earlier. So, I mean, it's not like he's going bad or backwards or anything. He's going very well. But Pogacar just pulled in another one of those monumental performances for his fifth monument now, third third Lombardy in a row. The field at Lombardy is always it's different from the kind of field you get in the spring classics where everyone's on fire. But still... 
took some notable names on Saturday. You know, Roglic was third. Remco Evenepoel was there. And I, I, I kind of expected a bit more of him. But, you know, he's he's had a long season. You know, he, he raced hard from early in the season to focus on the Giro. And, you know, his season didn't go the way he probably hoped it would. But he, he was off the pace a little, got dropped, you know, maybe 35 kilometres ago. And so Pogacar was kind of alone ahead of the race. I think the Pogacar winning is a combination of two things. One, the field was strong, but not super, super strong. Although, like I said, with Roglic and Evenepoel in the field, not shabby. And secondly, he's just so good at this kind of race. I mean, if you wanted to design a race that was perfectly suited to Tadej Pogacar, you'd probably design it like this, wouldn't you? Yeah. Remco did have an early race crash, so who knows if that played with him or not. And I think that he... He used a lot of energy at the Volta Espana. I think he came out of that more tired than, say, Roglic, who was holding back at the end. But Roglic, you know, Roglic is good. Remco is is always good, even though you know these guys. All it takes with them is to be just a little bit off. You don't you don't stand a chance with somebody like Pogacar. It's a funny race, isn't it, Lombardy? It, it, it sometimes feels like it's out on a limb in the season, especially compared to the other monuments. The other monuments all come thick and fast in a. You know, six or seven week period in the springtime and they are part of that crescendo that builds from the start of the season all the way through to the Tour de France. The end of the season always feels a bit anticlimactic because after the Vuelta and especially with the Worlds having been held in August this year we waited quite a long time for this one race. At the same time I've got a real soft spot for it. I feel that it deserves its prominence as one of the monuments. It's a beautiful race in a beautiful region and it does give us that focal point it used to be yeah we'd have the worlds and then you'd have Perry tour and then you'd have lombardia and you'd have this final sequence of big one-day races and this year the worlds were early and Perry tour gets overlap now so it's not that that same sequence and so you know all eyes were on lombardy and it was like the last big thing but uh yeah as you say it's it's kind of hanging out there it's it's something that I think the UCI could look at in terms of calendar and see if are there some other races perhaps that maybe could get that could switch and be closer to Lombardia so that we have a real end of the season classics group. Yeah, with weather patterns seeming to change the last few years. I mean, it's been quite a while since the last Lombardia was held in grotty weather, I think, and it used to have that real autumnal feel with long shadows and felt like the end of the year. Whereas now it. Yeah, you know, it's it's lost a bit of its atmosphere, but I, I I still think with the scenery, climbs and course and history, it rates its position. Just stunning, stunning countryside. These pristine lakes with the shadows of the Alps uh, and Switzerland right behind you all the time. It's really a stunning backdrop. Yeah, I you know in terms of beauty of scenery, I mean the coast road in Milan San Remo comes at the right time, doesn't it? That's the start of spring. You get the blue sky, the blue sea, the you know, that kind of yellow cliffs and it's beautiful and I I do very much enjoy that scenery but for me Il Lombardia has the the finest scenery and I'm, I'm in bike racing you know in large part because of the scenery I, I can't help thinking that this is a race that stands above many of the other ones. These races are monuments and they're that way for a reason because they tell stories that are bigger than a lot of other bike races because they go from places from point A to point B in ways that are are, are just are monumental. Giro Lombardia is absolutely one of them. Was there any sense for you at all that this was a bit predictable? I mean, on a mountainous parkour, Pogacar going away and not getting caught, 
after good work by his team as well to set him up. They've got a very, very strong, deep, deep team. Was there any sense on the racing side that this was a bit too predictable? You know, hindsight's always uh, twenty twenty, And yeah, when you see the way he won it, yeah, you, you want to go, well, of course he's going to win. He won the last two and he's uh, Tadej Pogacar, right? But, you know, he just lost to Roglic, who finished very strong just a couple of days earlier. And who knows? And, and, and Remco came to win. Um, and, he, you know, he had his team at the front. They were racing, racing to win for a lot of it. And, you know, Tadej put in a couple of attacks and at first he couldn't shake him and finally he did. And, that was all she wrote. He's such a beautiful racer to watch, and you don't know when the next exploit's going to happen. And, you know, because he doesn't always win, because, you know, the Tour of France has now become a question mark, well, you can't quite take it for granted either. When he shows up at a race, he's going there for one reason, and that's to win. And he's going to give it everything he's got, and it's a thing of beauty to watch him in action. Yeah. Before we get on to Paris Tour, just a, a, a related question with Il Lombardia and Tadej Pogacar. So when you look at the the really big races of the year, the, the big 10, I call them, you know, it's it's the monuments, the grand tours and the worlds. Those are the biggest, most prestigious races in the world. You had Milan San Remo won by Mattia van der Poel. You had Tour Flanders won by Tadej Pogacar. Paris-Roubaix won by Mattia van der Poel again. Liège-Baston-Liège won by uh, Remco Evenepoel. The grand tours, Giro won by Primoz Roglic, Tour de France by Jonas Vingegaard and Vuelta a España, Sepp Kuss. And the World Championships in between that, the World's Road Race was won by Mathieu van der Poel and then Lombardia by Tadej Pogacar. The odd one out slightly there with no disrespect intended is Sepp Kuss, who hasn't got the glittering palmares of those other riders. But that's a remarkable monopoly by very few riders on the world's biggest races. No one else is getting a look in at the moment, are they? No, and fortunately, your top 10 is actually nine. So that leaves us one variable, which I would I would say is Strade Bianchi. And, and that allows us to bring in another element, which would be uh, Pitcock. But, you know, yeah, okay, Sepp has spent most of his life working for others, but everybody forever has been saying, God, if he was only a team leader, what would he win? And he just showed what he's capable of winning. So only the biggest riders win the biggest races, and that's proof there, be it 9 or 10 or 11 or 12. Can't count. It's late in the season, James. So who's your rider of the year? Who's your male rider of the year? I would have to say Vanderpool for these reasons. Vingegaard, outstanding, but just the tour. Pogacar, outstanding, but he came up short in the tour, which is something he really wanted to win. Vanderpool won two monuments and the world championships. That guy, he races big. And when he has a big objective, he has an amazing ability to really focus and attain those objectives. I tend to agree with you there, actually, because I've been thinking about this. My, my opinion might evolve the further I get from the season, where I think about it and get some distance from it. But, you know, Vingegaard, yeah, he did win the Tour, but he also won the Dauphiné and uh, Itzulia Basque Country as well. And, you know, for me, the stage race of the year, you can't really argue with that. Van der Poel, same again. He he won those three big one-day races, the one-day race, race of the year. And the, the kind of complication is the fact that Pogacar was a contender in the Tour de France and still in what might be reflected on as not one of his best seasons, still won two monuments. And the fact that he's winning the Tour of Flanders and competing in the Tour of, Tour de France is that's revolutionary in itself. So it's always tempting to think that, well, the best all-round cyclist in the world at the moment is Tadej Pogacar. And I'd say probably he is the best rider in the world. But at the same time, you're right. The fact that Van der Poel won three out of those nine races 
just getting my maths, maths correct there. He won three out of those nine races. You know, not many people have ever done that. That's that's quite a rare thing. Eddie Merckx used to do it quite a lot. But I think, from memory, the last person to do that was Tom Boonen in 2005 with Flanders, Roubaix and the World. It's certainly rare enough that it doesn't happen that often. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think, although Pogacar is the best cyclist in the world and was the best cyclist in the world this year, the rider of the year, paradoxically as it may seem, is Mathieu van der Poel. So, Il Lombardil was not the only historic classic taking place at the weekend. Paris Tour, which has kind of fallen on hard times in the last 10 or 15 years, maybe. You know, when I grew up as a cycling fan, Paris Tour was one of the big events of the year. The designation monument wasn't used, but it was one of the upper echelon of classics. And it used to be the weekend, as you said, it used to be the weekend before in Lombardia and it kind of closed out the French season in terms of major races so this is race one as we said by Riley Sheehan of Israel Premier Tech and we would never have predicted that it was, it was, it was, it was an interesting race the group who's in stayed away just contested the sprint a few seconds ahead of a reduced bunch and very exciting so first of all before we get on to the meaning and history of the race how was yesterday's race for you james well yeah it was i mean fascinating uh finish and uh, astounding victory and well i think he's going to be one rider who has a contract next year that was a very very impressive sprint that he did you know and the pack was right behind them I mean, they, those guys they're playing a little cat and mouse but it's a tricky game they have to save their energy as much as possible in the last k last 2k but they're all looking behind them because they can see that pack and it's a it's against this big boulevard called the boulevard Gramont, and it's just this wall of riders just closing in on them this like vacuum and you know they all have got to hedge their bets but take do just enough work to to keep that that group ahead and then save it for the sprint and you couldn't have written a better sprint. It was a thing of beauty. It is interesting. This was never considered a monument, as you say, but in many ways back in the day, it's just as long as a monument. It was 250K. And they always called it the Sprinter's Classic. It was the only classic that Eddie Merckx never won. But it's been years since it's actually finished in a sprint. That course has changed a little bit, and the, the group is always right there. It's always maybe a sprint, but it's... It, it rarely, rarely is these days. That's true. I read in the in the cycling news report of the race that the current plan for Riley Sheehan is to be racing Criteriums in the States with the Denver Disruptors next year. I mean, maybe maybe that plan will change now he's won Paris Tour. If I were Israel Premier Tech, I'd be looking at either extending his stagiarship or getting him on board ASAP. Talked about the, the structure of the race and the balance of the race between the sprinters and attackers. In the past, they had a couple of little hills just in the last couple of kilometres. They used to loop around Tour and then back in over these steep climbs. They're kind of Philippe Gilbert hills. I remember he used to attack on those. And that used to just balance it, like the Poggio in Milan San Romeo, between the attackers and the sprinters. In recent years, they've started experimenting with gravel sectors, which is um, definitely a change to the race. I remember when I initially saw it, I thought the race was having a midlife crisis. They must have been desperate for something, anything to do. But you have to admit, watching the race, that you know, gravel sectors always spice up the racing and make it unpredictable in a way that just riding 250k to tour won't. So the race is an interesting one. I kind of wonder if it's lost its way or whether it's undergoing a a renaissance or whether it's just being left to wither on the vine. And what do you think the point of attraction and uniqueness and 
you know, what's the meaning of this race? What is Paris Tour for? These are good questions, Ed. And I don't know that I have a, a total answer. It's a very historic race. We went through the, the plains of the Beauce, uh, which is just, you know, flat plains of wheat fields and whatnot, into the Loire River. I mean, I've done this race like 15 times. Then there was always this moment where we crossed the Loire River in Amboise under the chateau. I have taken that picture I don't know how many times. And then they would work their way up the back hills behind Tour and have these kind of punchers at the end. I guess it was more or less Gilbert who transformed the race because he would always take those hills and make just try to turn the race upside down. And he did, and I think he opened the door to what was possible and guys knew they could stay away. And they started doing it time and again. I think it was 2011. We just sat down with uh, Greg Van Avermaet for this issue that we, that we just sent off. And that was his first significant victory. He'd been knocking on the door. And then he finally won Perry Tour, which was a huge victory for him. A transformative victory for him. This was still a race that, that meant something. But it was not a monument. Now, for a long time, if you remember, we had this thing called the World Cup. And it was part of that. So that gave it some elite stature. But then that, that whole structure disappeared. I think what really hurt it was when they lost the calendar battle and, and, and overlapped it with Lombardy. It's really struggled now with an identity, even though it's owned by the Tour de France. And, you know, they've made real efforts to transform it and give it a new a new look with, with the whole gravel section. And the gravel sections make sense. What are they doing? They're going through the gravel roads of the grapevines of the Loire River Valley. So it tells part of the story. It enhances the story of this race that winds through the plains of northern France through the Loire. But it hasn't quite yet given it that boost that we're expecting. And I don't know what's there, what we can do exactly, unless we can maybe change the date of it and give it a better place in the calendar. But ASO has got a lot of cards in their deck, and they're playing so many different games and, and positioning so many different races that this one right now is uh, it's just kind of there, and it's too bad. That's right. I mean, it dates back to 1896, which makes it one of the oldest races on the entire calendar. Like I said, it, it was very prominent. It was one of the biggest races of the year for many, many years. When I came into the sport as a cycling fan, it was a major end-of-season event. It was targeted by the big riders, often ended in a, in a bunch sprint, which I didn't think was that interesting. But it, you know, it's part of the World Cup. It had its slot in the calendar. It was the penultimate weekend. The race usually came after the Worlds and before Lombardy, which gave it a nice spot. And it's just sunk from prominence because really, in terms of racing intrigue, it was pretty similar to Milan San Remo. And we love Milan San Remo. That's been through some criticism as well. But at the same time, we're going through a phase at the moment where people appreciate and love Milan San Remo for what it is. So why not Parry Tour? It's a funny one. I, I don't really have the answer. And I, I fear that it is an anachronism, not a priority. And it's slowly kind of dwindling, which is a shame because... The other thing I would say about Paris Tour is it's one of my favourite races and I love the atmosphere. I think the atmosphere and landscape of a French autumn with kind of misty edges to forests and fields and gently rolling hills and big skies. It's got a character and atmosphere all of its own. And I really liked the finish in Tour as well. You know, it's got that iconic finishing straight. It's still got that aura of mystique and reputation. But I don't think enough people agree with me, James. I think that as cycling fans collectively forget what it was like, it will slowly equally dwindle in prominence. We're going to have a short break now, then we'll be back to talk about team transfers, mergers and lack thereof. 
I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Rouleur, the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Our latest edition, out now, is Rouleur 122, the travel edition. You could argue that every edition of Rouleur is a travel edition. After all, the bike is a tool for both physical journeys, from A to B, and also emotional and metaphorical journeys on which we find ourselves. At Rouleur, we have always been about celebrating where the bike can take us, but this edition of the magazine is a deep dive into the human urge to explore. Rouleur 122 features Richard Abraham's amazing feature, The Road, which is about a secret place in the mountains. A real road, but well off the beaten track. It's not the highest, hardest, almost epic road, but as Richard reveals, it may be the perfect road. A pure riding experience. A perfect riding experience. The kind of road you can lose yourself on. Read the magazine and you might be able to work out where it is, but that doesn't matter. The important thing is to get that experience wherever you can find it. Also in Rouleau 122, an exclusive interview and shoot at home in the Canadian prairies with Paris-Roubaix winner Alison Jackson. Exploring abandoned places in Sardinia, Moulin and the overlooked place of the world, up the peak du Midi du Bigor, an interview with Tigrayan cyclist Negasi Hailu Abreha, gravel riding in Sri Lanka, Finland gravel with Valtteri Bottas, Andrea Taffy's Agriturismo, Tim Armani, art cycle with Maurice de Vlamink, Techno Gym, Vittoria, three explore features and much, much more. Rouleur is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture, and Rula 122 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to ruler.cc, hit the subscribe button and enter the code PODCAST15 to get 15% off our regular subscription price. And now, back to the show. I'm back with James Start to talk about the merger that was mooted between Jumbo Visma and Sudal Quickstep. A lot of takes were aired, but actually it seems that nothing is happening. What's your perspective on how everything turned out, James? I'm still trying to digest it, as I think a lot of people are, but talk about much to do about nothing, huh? This is the biggest non-story that we've had in cycling for a long time. I mean, it was going to transform the face of the Peloton next year, and it was throwing disarray into the Peloton at the end of this year and all of it for nothing and outside of maybe the fact that Primoz Roglic quickly left the team but I think that that uh, was already in his mind before so I you know I don't know it was so many what ifs and the dust is still settling but personally if I'm really happy it didn't happen because I think this was a, a major bad thing for the sport. Do you think this is a function of the sport's business model? Many team managers are at pains to say that the search for sponsors is not easy and takes up a large amount of time and effort. And if you don't find one, that's the end of your team. This happens all the time. We've seen big teams all of a sudden without a sponsor. I mean, and, and what, are they, what are they doing? Back in the 80s, the Renault team uh, had won like half the stages of the tour and all of a sudden they didn't have a, a sponsor. And then, you know, HTC back, it was at 2011. I mean, an amazing team with an amazing history. All these great riders and a team that got as many wins as, say, Quickstep, all of a sudden couldn't find a sponsor and was gone. So these things happen. And now you got Jumbo Visma, which is saying Jumbo wants to leave, even though they've won everything. So, you know, I think they still have uh, uh, plenty of options out there. But merging with uh, with Sudal Quickstep was one of them. I think it would have been such a bad thing for the sport just because you had two very powerful teams. I mean, even Quickstep, who's, they haven't had their best year, but they still have won 
50 how many races six races so far i think i mean they're they're constant winners and if you took the best part of that team merged it with the best part of jumbo i mean what what else is there to win it's just such a monopoly that i didn't want to think about it I, it's funny because i was talking uh with uh, jim okowitz uh who was a longtime manager of motorola 7-eleven i may have said this actually in the last podcast but he said we're in a weird space here uh, you got two teams that have at least a thousand points over every other team and every race has just become a jumbo uae battle and if you stacked jumbo with quickstep or sudal i mean geez it was daunting to think about how many races they win but it was something i didn't really, really think about because all of a sudden you know suspense uh huh where is that at the same time strong cycling teams aren't aren't a new thing jumbo would have been extraordinarily strong but there's no mechanism or rule or reason to stop a team being as strong as it possibly could not in the free market uh, that is cycling but for the love of sport and and competition and these things um things just as well this didn't happen although you know the what-ifs are still out there i mean would remco really have gone with them the what-ifs again are are they just they're, they're never ending but we're not going to have answers to those questions because those questions have ceased to exist so when we look at winners and losers overall uh, maybe not much has changed as you as said james I mean, roglic is moving to bora but as he said he was probably going to leave anyway looks like evan paul is staying at sudal quick step with patrick lefevre ineos looked like they might be in the market for both roglic and evan paul but that was kind of rumors rather than any substantiated approach and so ineos is still looking for a leader at the same time as having decent prospects within the team already, young young prospects. Who, so they're, they're in a funny place, but they haven't used the transfer market to bolster their team for next year. So really, is it not just status quo next year? 2024 looks much like 2023 as far as I can see. Uh, yeah, now in the end, it, it more or less is. It's just this, like you said, this hiatus that put the whole sport on standby. I mean, I've, I've been talking with riders who are looking for jobs and they're saying uh, we can't get anything back from any team all of our, our agents are just telling us nothing is moving until this quick step jumbo thing is resolved because we don't know how many people are going to be on the market and what that might do to salaries for all the unemployed guys a lot of teams are out there they've got they got spots still to fill they've got riders they, they haven't signed or renewed and they're waiting to see exactly how the chip's going to fall might we instead of renewing this contract, get this guy at a good price. That's the reality of the cycling market. So if I didn't have a contract right now, it'd be, it's, it's you know, uh, you, got, you got to be very zen to stay on it here and continue to be a professional cyclist if you don't have a contract right now with all the chaos that's been going on. Um, but hopefully that's going to settle down. The dust is settling and, you know, hopefully the, the contracts will move forward, discussions will move forward and we'll get back to to where we were even if that is more or less a status quo i guess the positive thing is that the world tour was going to shrink from 18 teams to 17 they weren't going to reissue the license to any other team so that would have meant 30 fewer riding jobs and that number times three or four of support staff and associated jobs um so the positive thing is they they exist and and i guess you know the other teams would have been waiting to see whether there was going to be a sudden influx of cheap riders on the market because it looked like less of a merger than a takeover 
and that the consequence was going to be a lot of two dial quick step riders on on the market and you know when there's a lot of riders on the market you can depress salaries absolutely even though it's status quo i gotta say i'm this is a situation where i'm happy with that status quo because this is a sport that is so volatile and guys can be out of a job and out of career before you know it and we're always i mean we're usually asking the, the opposite question you know how can we increase stability the fact that this merger didn't happen allows us to retain a bit of stability is for me basically a positive thing and then within that i mean the fact that roglic has now gone to bora that does open the frontier a bit you know that's going to be a very good tour de france team going back to the point uh, you made about stability i just wonder whether cycling isn't just inherently unstable the revenue streams aren't the same as other sports you you can't easily charge gate money the main revenue in the in the sport comes from sponsors as it always has you know these days there's a fair amount of tv money in the sport but that tends to go to races rather than teams and riders so it's hard to know how you can change that you can't you can't charge people to stand on the mountainside there in some isolated instances maybe you can but generally people aren't going to do it because it's the greatest free show in the world so you have sponsors and sponsors have a finite shelf life the market becomes fully saturated with uh, exposure for sponsors and then there's no return on investment anymore and unless you've got a ceo who is extremely passionate about cycling they disappear from the sport so that instability seems to me to be baked in to the sport and you know we've been to- we've been talking about this you know since the advent of the world tour it's been talked about since i've been following the sport in the mid 1980s the financial instability seems to be part of the peloton absolutely it's a broken system from the get-go it's the system that evolved over a century ago in a very haphazard way so many of these races were put on by by, by newspapers trying to get publicity. Ah, let's go uh, Perry Brest Paris. Ah, let's do Perry Roubaix. Ah, uh, let's uh, let's do a Tour de France. You know, and all of a sudden you got a ultra marathon race. You've got a single day classic, and you've got uh, you've got a Grand Tour. And you know, and they've been coexisting together. Okay, the marathon racing kind of went by the wayside, even though it may have a renaissance. But you know, the one day races and the classics and the Grand Tours, it'll never be Formula One. Uh, it's not you're not going to have an even playing field you're not in a stadium our stadium are the roads and that's also the beauty of it but it makes for a lot of incongruity and a lot of conflict really and yet the system works you know i mean it does work we have a beautiful sport we've got a lot of teams decent sponsors a whole lot of riders not just like the very creme de la creme at the top say like in tennis but a whole lot of riders make very decent salaries considering how big the professional peloton is and we're starting to see it now with women's racing too you know i mean obviously there's still roads uh, of improvement but when you consider where the sport was 20 years ago there are a lot of people that are making a living out of this sport so it's not you know it's not a complete failure either by any stretch of the means or or the imagination but yeah we have to, that instability has just always been there the sports on the men's side above all, has muddled through. It's a bigger sport than it's ever been. There is coverage of races pretty much every day from mid-January to mid-October. There may be cracks in the underlying structure as far as televising all these races coming in. I, I hope there's enough money going into that to justify 
the expense because that could easily disappear. But the sport has, by necessity, always had to muddle through. And on the surface of it, it's probably got more money in it now, at the end of 2023, than it ever has in the past. Absolutely. And we've got an amazing crop of riders. I mean, just all those names you listed that won the big 10, even though it's only nine <laughs> races. All of those guys are brilliant bike riders. All of those guys put in brilliant, brilliant rides. And the same, you know, goes obviously for the women's side. I mean, Perry Roubaix was, was captivating and the Grand Tours, great high drama. And we've got an, an amazing generation of, of cyclists who aren't racing real calculated who are really throwing it down when it counts and risking it all to win the biggest races. And that's, you know, how much better does it get? I mean, I was I was a student of the 90s and it was kind of ho-hum, oh, yawn, yawn. You know, uh, it was very tedious with the teams just dominating, guys winning and losing by a couple of seconds, but never really cracking. Also never really like going for exploits, you know? And this is a whole different game and it's really exciting and it's great for the sport and it's only going to help bring in new sponsors. And I guess the good news is that all of those great riders are not all going to be representing one team in 2024. I think that's all from Ruler Conversations this week. Homework for listeners, subscribe to the magazine, buy your Ruler Live tickets. Thank you, James. Your season starts here or in a couple of weeks, whenever. (laughs) It's always fun. You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Ruler Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Ruler Magazine. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Ruler and on Instagram at Ruler Magazine or visit our website at Ruler.cc. This edition of Ruler Conversations was produced by Joseph Perry of Content is Queen. <laughs>